Hi there, I'm Paul Mitchell, speaker and author and founder of The Human Enterprise. Welcome to Enterprise Radio, where we interview transformational leaders from business, from the community, from sport and from the arts. Einstein once said, you can't solve a problem at the logical level at which it presents itself. Well, that's exactly what my next guest, John Body, does. Him and his team at ThinkPlace, which is a creative design consultancy, solve problems at a whole new level of thinking. They apply the principles of design thinking to what we call wicked problems, which are problems that have possibly been around for a long time. The solutions are never linear, quite complex, and they involve multiple stakeholders. Listen as John describes his fascinating journey of discovery and the many learnings about leadership, and particularly since he founded ThinkPlace in 2005. There are some absolute pearls here from John as he summarises his his philosophy on leadership and and on business. Oh, and one thing, listeners, you probably hear some shuffling of papers a few times during the interview. Hope it's not too irritating for you or too distracting because the transformational lessons that John is going to share with, with you are really, truly inspirational. Sit back, listen and enjoy John Body from Think Place. So, John, good to see you again. How's your day been? Yeah, it's been very good, thanks. That's the way. So, uh, John, you have an incredibly, uh, amazingly different and unique business here. So maybe you'd like to uh, kick off by telling our, our listeners what's your current role? Well, I'm the founding partner of Think Place. It's a company I set up in 2005. So we've been going almost 10 years now. Wow. And what's your role involved in as, as founding partner? What's your role evolved to? The role's actually evolved into, um, it's a, it's a bit of everything. I'm part-time entrepreneur. And so always looking out over the horizon. What's the next thing that we're going to do? I'm part-time manager, leader of, of the team here, uh, of people in the company. And I still have a big technician role. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy that. I get a lot from that. So I'm still very hands-on as well. That's, um, that's a, a wonderful distinction there. We often talk with our leaders how no matter how senior we are, there's often three chunks. There's the leadership chunk, the managerial chunk, and the technical chunk. And uh, the key, of course, is to make sure you're allocating enough time to that leadership chunk. Yes. Um, so tell me, uh, what's the what would you describe as the mission of the business, the vision of the business? Uh, what is it that you do in the world? So ThinkPlace is a design consultancy, strategic design consultancy. We work uh, with organisations that have, um, they're in complex spaces, often government or they could be NGOs. We work in the development sector as well offshore. Um, so we work with organisations that have got some sort of complex challenge where a design thinking approach, strategic thinking approach is going to help uh, to help break through. Uh, that the term wicked problems, which yes. was coined quite a lot of years ago, they're the types of challenges we get stuck into. And with those wicked problems, we bring a design thinking, strategic thinking, whole system, systems thinking perspective to those challenges. To really break through to another level for that, uh, for that client. It might help, John, if you gave us maybe, uh, one or two examples of the, of the, of the sort of issues that clients bring to you and maybe, uh, how you might go about, because I know it's very much about collaboration, the way you work with them to try to get some resolution to those wicked problems. So one of the, 
projects that I'll talk about is one we often use as a case study. It was with the local uh, ACT government here in Canberra. And they were, they came to us and were talking about the question of families, um, families that are experiencing difficulty getting the services that they need from government. So they might be getting a lot of services, but they're just not working for them. And so we constructed with the ACT government and the community sector here, a co-design project that involved about 10 of those families, eight or 10 of those families. And we spent a lot of time, several months, just listening. Uh It was purely listening. We weren't trying to get a solution. We figured this was a 50 or 100 year old problem. Mm. Um, We wouldn't solve it in a month. So we spent six or eight months uh, on a project of listening. We then moved to a second phase with the ACT government where we specifically targeted improving services. And again, it was a co-design activity with the families, with the community sector, with government, and with us brokering that design exercise. The ACT government have subsequently taken that and scaled that even further. So that's an example, a case study of of a very successful project that we have been involved in. And what a lot of huge leadership lessons there are. So many leaders that might take over a new business or a new role want to come in and put their stamp on it straight away. What I love there was the first phase was the listen, to honour what was already happening there, to really find out from their perspective uh, um, you know how how it was experienced. Then I guess the the um, you knew that there was a solution, but it was very very much all the stakeholders uh, working together. Talk more about that because it seems a, a vital part of almost one of your principles. This whole systems approach that you talked about. Well, we see very much our role is to be a broker, as the designer in a complex environment. We're not so much the sole maker. We're a broker of a whole lot of voices. Right. And so we look for people with authority, the decision-making authority. We look for the people, though, that experience that system, which is those families. Now, it would seem common sense, but it's not common practice. If you're trying to improve the service for that group of families... Talk to the people, yeah, yeah. And, And not just talk to them, listen to them, observe them, and understand their underlying needs. And that tells you a huge amount of information. But then also don't forget to involve the experts, the experts who understand you know, the social worker expert or the expert who understands the financial system or how you deliver community services or how you deliver mental health services or community um, justice services. So it's not diminishing the role of the expert. No. But it's bringing the role of the expert with the role of the authoriser, with the role of the the person who's actually affected by the change. Mm. Um, One of our core expertises here is that collaboration. We're we're very good at facilitation. Uh, We're very good at identifying who needs to be involved to construct uh, what that design should be. So there's a number of uh, pieces of expertise that we bring. We're very, we've got expertise here in visualization. So complex challenges, how can they be visualized so you can understand that challenge? 
uh, we've got expertise in that observation style or ethnographic style of research. So there's a number of um, competencies or expertises that we have in the company that we can bring to those types of challenges. And that brings up the fact that you, you attract uh, very, very different, very unique individuals mm-hmm. uh, that, that have uh, a lot of their identity tied up with that expertise. Um, what's it like to lead uh, technical professionals like this, you know, people that are, you know, that are that are passionate about it, uh, but also want that sense of freedom to sometimes do their own design thinking. What's it like in terms of a leadership challenge? I think it works quite well for my leadership style because I'm not good at micromanaging right? and I couldn't micromanage that type of group. Yes. You actually have to be pretty open. Um, a couple of things spring to mind. Occasionally a staff member will come and say, I want to go, I want to take a month off or two months off. I, I, I just want to backpack around South America or yeah. I want to go and study something in Spain or you have, because of the types of people, we have to be really open to that. If we said, no, you can't do that. We've yeah. got a job to do here. Uh, so we attract very inquisitive people, curious mm. people, interested people. And inevitably, they'll want to go and do some things. So we have to be able to accommodate that. If we couldn't accommodate that, we'd keep having to rehire and rehire. But we wouldn't have that sort of culture. The other thing that uh, comes to mind, I heard recently someone speaking, I think it was the head of Google in Australia, when you run these types of organisations, You've got to treat them more like you're running an organisation of volunteers. Right. You can't. You can't yeah. control through yeah. command and control. Yeah. You have to actually. It's more a volunteer. They're here because they want to be here, and they're actually here. What motivates everybody here is the impact they can have on those that we work with. Mm. They're not here to serve themselves or to serve me or the company. They're here because they're really motivated by a higher order goal, which is to have impact, and that's what really drives them. So some great lessons there, I guess, for our listeners, is that uh, treat all the people in your team as volunteers because they really are particularly clever people who have choices. Yes. Um, Particularly clever people, which is what you're managing here. And also, too, that we, we, yes, we can get motivated by the task and what we need to do, but the higher order impact, when people know they're making a significant contribution, when they're really, when their work is meaningful, um, how do you keep that going? Because, you know, that's great to say, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's head down, bum up, and you're just doing, doing, doing. How do you keep that passion alive in the business, John? Part of the way to keep the passion alive, I think we keep, we often, repeat what the vision is or bring people back to the vision. It may not so much be repetition, but I think it's quite, it's quite an important facet of leadership to bring people to develop the vision with them and bring people back to the vision and keep progressing that vision. And I think that's something over the 10 year course of Think Place that I've never stopped developing or stopped bringing people back to. So, the vision is is really quite important. I think playing things out into the future, our people are not working on projects that are going to deliver a benefit tomorrow necessarily. 
They might be working on projects, if they're lucky, that'll bring a benefit in 12 to 18 months, but often it's going to be four or five years down the track when the true benefit. So having some sense of a temporal view for them uh, and some ability to project. And um, some quite practical things that we've done here, and I think I I was telling you about this earlier, Mitch, some practical things that we do here. We're a strategic planning firm, so we've got a strategic plan in the in the traditional sense. Yes. But we've turned that into photos. Yes. And we've looked for photos Fantastic. that take us to the future. And we've got them in a section of the office where everybody's walking past them each day. So we tend to look for artifacts that are not taking us backwards but taking us forwards and symbols of that future of what we might look like as a company, the sorts of projects we might be working on in five years' time, the sorts of locations we might be in and the sorts of impacts we might be making. So obviously, yes, there's a time head down, tail up, but equally, I think, bring people back to the inspiration, yeah. excitement, the vision, and we do that. And what I love about uh, ThinkPlace, and uh, listeners, if you get a chance, go to the site and we'll give you a site details later on, uh, is that visualisation. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, we talk about visions and then we, 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 we uh, trump out a whole lot of words. What they do at ThinkPlace is it truly is a vision because they have pictures of that end state, pictures of those possibilities. So, John, you talked up front about the, that role of or that balance between leader, manager and technician, but you've made that transition. You started as a technician and you've built a very, very uh, successful, very, very uh, uh, sustainable and very high reputation business. How did you make that transition? How did you begin to let go and bring people on and start to do those first early phases? In some ways, I think the first hire was the hardest hire yeah. okay. to make. Um, one of the critical decisions, I suppose, is to get started in the first place, um, <laughs> because you're cutting the you're cutting the strings yeah. of security, yes. secure income. I had three children in high school and a very uh, secure John uh, uh, job, I believe. John, yeah, very secure job. Uh, came with with some sort of fringe benefits like a car and so on. And so suddenly you're left with no title, no car, no phone, no computer. Uh, and no source of income, and three uh, pretty uh, three dependents moving into a fairly intensive phase of um, education yeah. and so on. So that was a big decision. But interestingly, I've reflected on that. The biggest risk in that decision would have been to choose not to do what I did. Interesting, yeah. because I would have cut off the fantastic 10 years so far of ThinkPlace and mm. it's got a lot more years ahead of it, long, long, a lot more than me. Um, but I would have cut off uh, such an exciting period and so much more excitement to come. Uh, and just about on every score, whether that's the people I've met, the impact of that I've been able to make, make through uh, ThinkPlace, um, the reputation we've built, uh, the job satisfaction, the satisfaction of seeing so many other people benefit from yeah. Think Place, not to mention a financial benefit, but that almost comes 
down the list. Yeah. But it has been financially attractive, you know, very financially attractive as well. So on a whole range of indicators, whatever they might be, um, it it was would have been such a huge risk not to not to well what it what it would have done I would think was cut off a bit of yourself that you never would have developed never That's would right. have seen never would have lost you talked about one of the one of the real things you've loved is the right. different people that you've met we often find leaders have come across maybe mentors or it's a book or they come across people and I know from past discussions you said there was a few people in your life that you ran across that did make a difference. Can you maybe tell us about some people who have influenced your thinking, influenced your leadership? Well, I was very fortunate in the, during the late 90s, um, there was a point somewhere in the 90s where up until that point my career had been about mathematics, statistics, and all the real, true left-brain side of the world. And that was my expertise. It was what um, what I was good at um, and what people engaged me for. Interestingly, I moved into a budgeting function. And budgets are just plans reflected in dollars. And moving from that budgeting function... I, I skipped over to a planning function, which took me into a strategy function, and it's like this whole other world opened up. You can't do strategy purely by calculation and mathematics no, and no. statistics. There's intuition involved. There's, there's judgments. There's exploration required. Now, it was through that course that I met a lot of very interesting people. Uh, there was a consulting duo, Richard Haynes and Marvin Oker, that I was introduced to. Uh, I had a lot to do with them when I was working in the tax office. At the same time, I was also introduced to Tony Goldsby-Smith, who's a uh, resident of Sydney, um, Tony's principal of Second Road Consulting. Um, he had a big impact, a lot of his thinking. So Tony brought a lot of uh, depth out of Greek philosophy. That's where his, a lot of his thinking comes from. Richard Hames, Marvin Oka. Um, Marvin comes from neuro-linguistic NLP, programming. Yes. Mm. Richard comes from a, he's just got a very eclectic Hasn't set of knowledge. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, particularly systems thinking and, and this, uh, this broader view. Um, then that, through those people, I got introduced to, uh, the field of design, particularly through Tony Goldsby-Smith, and I met with uh, Professor Richard Buchanan, uh, who was Dean of the School of Design at um, Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, and Richard had a big impact as well. And there were others, uh, a lot of others that I could go on and name, but they're probably some of the more memorable people. And I guess the the, uh, the key here, again, for our listeners and our leaders is that it's like uh, it's a never-ending journey, isn't it? You, uh, what's uh, what's fantastic is how open you were to that learning, how open you were for and and, and the the quest for knowledge and so forth. Um, tell me a little bit about um, your. You've talked a bit about your leadership philosophy. If there was, is there a way of summing up that leadership philosophy? You have a very very flat structure here, and it's almost like we're we're all leaders to an extent. So expand on that a little bit for us, John. Okay, so one of the things that I'm very strong on here is that there is no sense of entitlement. Um, I, I think that 
optimum performance is in some sort of band that sits between people feeling fearful and people feel feeling entitled. Both of those states kill productivity, kill engagement. But this band that sits in the middle is a high earnings culture. So I do a lot to ensure that people are neither feeling fearful because they're out of their depth Mm. or they're worried about what sort of feedback they're going to get. But equally, I don't want anyone to feel complacent or entitled. So some of the symbols around making sure there's no entitlement culture, uh, there's no special car parks for by level. Uh, I don't have a desk. I don't have an office. I have to walk around with my briefcase and, and work out where I'm going to sit at any point in time. Which would be so uncomfortable for many of the leaders we work with. <laughs> well, I really like it yeah. because what it means is I get to sit next to different people each day. I get a different view each day. And I'm out of the office over half the time. So from a purely economic rationalist perspective, yeah. I'm not tying up yes. a bit of real estate yeah. that I don't need yes. to tie up. But that's not really You're the sweating prime. the asset. Yeah. It's not the prime motivation. The prime motivation is anything that smacks of entitlement, I don't want. Yeah. So yeah, we had a little thing recently where we said, what if we give everybody above a certain level, they get Qantas Club membership? And I said, no, because we're introducing something for different levels. Right. Instead, what we said is if you fly more than 12 times a year, you get Qantas Club membership. Mm. So things like that, just really watching that nothing comes in that looks like yes. it's levelist or giving an entitlement. What a great uh, what a great message to be sent out. It's whether you, it's the hours you do rather than the hours you've been in the business. It's, mm. it's almost very, very task oriented as such. Um, for the leaders that are wondering about, well, gee whiz, could I, could I use these design principles in my own business? If I wasn't going to use ThinkPlace, uh, how would I incorporate this into an issue that I've got? Say I've got a particular problem that come up in my business or in my team. Um, what would be some of the generic stages or generic phases of what you go through that even without having a design consultancy like like ThinkPlace come in, that they could apply to those wicked problems? Well, I think the first stage around a wicked problem, the step, the first step we ever take in trying to solve it is to understand what's the problem. So it's quite, it's quite common to go and solve a problem without knowing what the problem is that you're solving. So we spend quite a lot of time unpacking Just what are the drivers, what's happening, what's going on? And if we were really successful at solving this challenge, what would we see? What would success look like for the different people that are out Mm. there? Um, It's only then that we've bookended the wicked problem that we can start to think about possibilities. What might we do? Right. Um, So that would be, that's our starting point always. We then move from there and we do, um, we are very interested in taking a prototyping approach. So don't try and solve this problem necessarily in some linear analytical way. Often in a, in a chaotic sort of system, you've just got to try something. Yes. See if it works. Yeah. 
So it's a very experimental, very scientific sort of approach as opposed to a prescriptive linear approach. Right. And that means try something, gather evidence, see did it work, did it make a difference, can we scale this? And so without going into a huge amount of methodological detail, uh, being clear on the problem, (coughs) prototyping it, and then start to validate and expand and scale. Mm. That would be the sort of approach that we take. It's not unsimilar to years ago, there was a, the, the four steps of quality plan, like do, check, act in mm. terms of that reiterative process. Mm. So, But this is a little bit, I love the way you spend a lot of time just unpacking it and then talking about what would the future look like if we were able to solve this, if mm. we were able to nail it, mm. then possibilities and then almost doing something, not, not this huge thing, uh, and, and seeing what happens, but almost experimentation along the way. Yes. Um, so what have been some of the big successes? Where have you really feel you have made that difference? And I know that's so important for you. Um, so when you're talking success, are you talking successes? For the clients, yeah, for the, the clients, clients, yeah. Yeah. Well, I gave you the... Um, I did give you the, the family one, yeah, yeah, yeah. one recently. We've done a number of projects... Uh, in the development sector, we've got a couple of people that are permanently over in Kenya, or they have been for the past couple of years, and other people from here go over and work there. So a project we ran over in Kenya recently was for one of the local... It's, it's a Kenyan bank called the Jimabora Bank, and they were looking for a product. What sort of financial service does a farmer require in that Kenyan context where the farmer's not fully commercial, they're actually primarily subsistence? Yes. Um, what what product do they need to help them enter the, the mainstream financial economy? Uh, the bank has quite an aggressive plan itself to grow. And they were, and they're very motivated to help Kenyans and people in that East Africa region. So we worked with the bank, with the farmers, with um, scaling partners, program partners. We we've done quite a bit of work with Grameen Foundation in Kenya. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, so we worked with different entities over there, but again, we were the broker. We were trying to bring, well, what's the intention here? What's some of the expertise? Uh, but what's the real experience of the, of the farmer that's seeking, um, and interested in some sort of financial service? So that project, um, it's too soon to know whether, you know, what the results are as such, mm-hmm. but, um, the product of the project itself was a very good product. And and the, the principle, again, uh, apart from broking all both the experts and those that are directly involved, but the principle of going to who ultimately are we serving here mm-hmm. and getting their voice heard seems mm-hmm. to come up again, yeah. as it was with families, as it was with the farmers as such. We also do some pretty hard-nosed projects. We work a lot with law enforcement um, border security. So it's not all just uh, mm. projects where there, where there's a social welfare type aspect. Um, we also work on projects where the public value being generated is a societal value. Right. So uh, we've done a lot of work with uh, the Department of Immigration, for example, where the value to society is, well, 
Um, if we can ensure that people coming into the country, you know, we get the right people coming in to supplement the economy, the society, but at the same time making sure we don't get the the people that shouldn't be coming into the country, war criminals or whoever yes. they might be, um, that we can live in we can live in a better society that's enriched by people coming from other countries, but not destroyed by mm. uh, by that as well. So we do do a lot of work with regulatory type agencies because regulation is a is a wicked problem. How do you get people to follow the rules, mm. but in an unobtrusive way that achieves the rules' desired outcome without causing a lot of pain for everybody else? So regulatory challenges is another area where we've had a lot of success um, designing um, things to do with security or risk or compliance or regulation. So that's a that's a huge range when you think about it. I mean, uh, so the key is design principles, but things like banking, like uh, uh, better services for families, law enforcement, uh, regulatory challenges. Is there a way that people would know they had a wicked problem? Because one of the things that can sometimes happen, we may not even know we have this problem. Mm. Any advice in that area? Yes, I think it's a good question. Uh, when I think back over the history of ThinkPlace, I don't think we've ever sold anything to anybody. People have come to us right. and said, I have a challenge. I have this challenge, yeah. And so they already know something about ThinkPlace and know that we're in the game of, of uh, we should be able to help them. If, they've got, if they just don't know what to do, it's so confusing or so chaotic or so difficult, we're often a place people come to. So we've never had to go into the market to say, or never tried to go into the market to say, this is how you know if you need us, because we've never pushed ourselves into mm. the market. And I think um, there is some degree of people need to be open to taking a design approach for their complex challenge. And there is an element of faith in that. Yes. Um we're not coming in necessarily with saying, well, we've got a templated answer out here mm. and we're going to come and bring it and apply it in yeah. our organisation. There is an element of faith that if you go through a certain clarify the intent, a prototyping approach, a constructive co-design, collaborative sort of approach, we will make something. We will get to a, to a solution of some sort. Yeah. 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 So it's a good question. I don't always go out and say to people, this is the nature of a wicked problem. Mm. But a wicked problem, by definition, is one that defies simple solution yes. or even any solution. Mm. Um, you sometimes just create a preferred future. You don't necessarily solve a wicked problem. So that's interesting, yeah, not to focus on the problem but the focus on the solution mm. that, that you want to create. Yeah. So, so John, that's been fascinating. We've talked a lot about ThinkPlace and a lot about your role there. I now know about wicked problems and the whole thing about a wicked problem is it's, uh, it's not something that's going to go away and maybe we don't even solve that. We go to the future that we want and the amazing array of, of, of scenarios where design thinking can be applied to. Um, in this section of the interview, I'd just like to focus a bit more on, on you, John. 
and, uh, and, and your actual leadership. So every leader has strengths. Every leader has vulnerabilities. I'm wondering what vulnerabilities you feel you may have as a leader and how you manage those or compensate for them or have your team support you in pushing past those so they don't become a problem. Well, I think one of the, um, one of some of the breakthroughs that I think we've had here at Think Place in developing leadership is recognizing that we need more than one person to be the leader uh, because any person has vulnerabilities. So in the early stages, there were two of us as leaders, but then uh, as we grew a bit more, there's really four people that are in the executive group of leaders. And in some ways, by looking at the relative strengths of those people, you can tell where my vulnerabilities are. Right, right. So I can... Uh, you know, a strength of mine. Every strength is a weakness. So I'm a very consultative person. Yes. Um, but, and I will be decisive, but after I've consulted, but there may be times when I keep things open too long. Okay. And so others in the leadership team are able to say, well, you know, it's now time for convergence. We're going to make a call on this. Good. So that, that is one example. I think, um, I'm not, overly process driven i can understand the value of process but i tend to uh, move in a more non-linear way and others on the team uh, in the leadership group or in our our head of our operations area can be more procedurally focused and say well you know if you sign this you'll be exposing yourself to that so i often need whilst i fully appreciate and understand risk I think others can advise me on yeah. that. And we've got some excellent financial and legal advisors that we've built up over the years as well to help us around, around that risk the, area. And did you stumble across that or, uh, no, no pun, or maybe pun intended, was it by design? Like you knew that you were pretty collaborative, so maybe someone helping you to converge on that decision. You knew that, yeah, process was important, but... Uh, you weren't that procedural, so you you put people in that, that 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 knew about procedures in certain aspects of the business. Did it did it just happen, or was it an evolution? Um, I think it was neither an accident or by design. It was okay. somewhere in between. Right, um, right. It was certainly I'm not arrogant enough to think that I've got every measure that I need because nobody does. No. Um, but perhaps in terms of filling the gaps, I think I more looked for people that I thought were good performers and then brought them in and realised the complementarity of their skills. Excellent, yeah. Uh, but definitely I would say that complementarity, know where your uh, less favoured zones are and compensate for those or complement those with others uh, I, I really firmly believe in that. Mm. And you've certainly done it here, here well with this major emphasis on that everyone leads. Um, are there any sort of pearls of wisdom that you find yourself uh, sharing with people about leadership and, and le- certainly leading a business like this? Any sort of, you've shared a couple with us, but uh, anything's sort of really key deep down things that you value both as an individual and as a leader that are important to you? One of the things I was introduced to some years ago was a old Jewish proverb that said, every person should walk this planet with two pieces of paper 
one one in one pocket and one in the other. And in one pocket, it should say, the piece of paper should say, I'm nothing but dust. And in the other pocket, the piece of paper should say, for me, this world was created. And these this highlights two concepts that I talked to the team about, one of nobility and one of humility. I think if either of those get out of balance, uh, we can have a problem. So an overstrong sense of humility ends up in language like, I sort of think we might be yes. able to do a little bit of this, <laughs> uh, which is not really a language of someone with a sense of nobility or strength. Mm. Uh, but equally, too much nobility gives you arrogance. Exactly. And yep. you lose the ability to listen, mm. uh, to empathize, to understand others. So one of the important principles I think we've got here, and I think it certainly helped me as a leader, is know when it's time to be that noble uh, character mm. and be strong and decisive and say this is the way. Know when it's time to say, I think there's something in what that person said. Mm. I'm going to listen. I'm going to delve <clears throat> further. It's actually going to change my mind. I just think that's... I think, listeners, we've just had a wonderful, wonderful summary of, of, of one of the key balances of, of leadership, uh, humility and nobility. And possibly not new, the words of uh, Kipling come to mind and walk with kings nor lose the common touch. Uh, so uh, uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Any final words of, of wisdom to, to leaders that are you know, really trying to take their team to the next level like you have? I think uh, I would say inspiration. Now, to be inspiring, I don't think you have to be necessarily effervescent and, and out there that, that might be a role for it's obviously appropriate for a lot of people uh, but this deep it can be a deep drive a deep inspiration a deep in excitement but you're really um, trying to take people to places um, you're trying to tap into their vision and try and combine their vision into the organization's vision. And in our case, it's about an impact far greater than any self-serving thing. So we're not trying to serve this company. We're not trying to serve any individuals in the company. We're really, we have a greater motivation. And I think that drives people. People want to have a sense of purpose. Mm. Um, and I think leadership is about exciting people, engaging that sense of purpose so that they can provide exceptional performance. What a, what a wonderful way of summarising it. It starts with that higher purpose always. <clears throat> and within that, there's certainly the organisational goals that need to be met and the individuals have their goals and they want to grow. If you can combine that individual growth with the organisational growth under that umbrella of higher purpose, you've certainly got an incredible winning formula. There might be one more thing I'd like to say sure. there because I think... For me, leadership, it's, it's a constant navigation. If you go 100% on anything, if I gave a prescriptive thing and say, you must, you should only do this or you should only do that, I think it's a constant state of navigation where you are constantly looking out and reading and saying, do I need to 
loosen things up here? Do I need to tighten things up there? Um, where do I need to be paying attention to right now? Where can I let a little bit of attention off? It, I, I think you never quite know because you're constantly reading the external environment, mm. the internal environment, making sense of that Absolutely. and then making calls. And, you, and you're navigating, you're constantly adjusting your sails to the, yes. to the seas around you. Yes. One of the things we've learned from London Business School, we call it situational sensitivity. Mm-hmm. What's happening in the total situation to be sensitive to it and only with that sensitivity can you then actually make the adjustments that are required as such. Um, uh, as I ask this question, I'm hoping it doesn't come from the, does it come from the humility or the nobility side? But I'm just wondering, is there any, without having too much hubris or ego attached to it, is there some legacy or something for you that would be really important for you to be remembered by? Somebody spoke to me about this the other day, and I think for me, the legacy is that Think Place is a place where the people who work here love working here. Um, because it works for their value set, for their personalities, and they feel they can really make a contribution in that earning sense. They're not complacent, but neither are they fearful or feel like they can't add value. So the legacy that I would like to leave is to think that there's a business thriving well, you know, well into the future, lifetimes away, if I can be that ambitious. Um, that really provides that sense of an organisation that's great to work for because it's doing great things. Mm. You know, what a wonderful note to uh, start to finish on. One of the things we often say in our leadership programs is do not set out to be a great leader. That's often hubris gone mad. Set out to do something of greatness. Set out to achieve something of greatness. And let me tell you, listeners, they really have done that in Think Place. It's a, it's an amazing organisation with amazing people doing amazing things in the world. Uh, John, I'm wondering if people wanted to get in touch with you, do they get in touch with you? Do they go on the site? Even if they just wanted to chat uh, about a potential wicked problem, how would they go about that? Well, obviously, the website's a good place to go, uh, thinkplaceglobal.com. Uh, we introduced that website recently, recognising we've now got Singapore, an office in Singapore, Wellington, we've got people in Sydney, Canberra, and Kenya, as I said, and we're looking at other places at the moment. So thinkplaceglobal.com is, is a good Great. place to go. The there's, a, yep. there's a contact point there. Uh, the number here in Canberra, is um, 02 for the area code 62828852. Great. Uh, I'm happy to talk to people, and I'm sure many of the other people here would be very happy to talk through people if they're wrestling with some sort of wicked problem or want to know how they might apply a design thinking approach. We'd be more than happy to talk to people. So, John, thanks again so much for sharing uh, so much of your your wisdom, your experience, your intent. Um, uh, and uh, some of the lessons I've picked up is you have to start with the, the, the people that really count. I mean, we all count. 
and we all need to be counted, but start with the people that are really going to be those almost like end users of that service. Uh, the importance of actually des- having everybody involved, the importance of really good design principles, uh, the importance of creating a lot of collaboration and, and, and doing something bigger than what you're doing at the moment. So uh, great to talk with you. I know Think Place has a future way beyond uh, your three score year and 10 and I uh, wish you all the best with it. And, and, uh, and uh, thanks again for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. It's been great talking to you, Mitch. Thank you. Thanks, John. Well, what wonderful lessons about business, about culture, about leadership. That the great people need to be treated as volunteers, not just employees. That they're motivated by a higher goal, a higher purpose. Uh, not to not just talk, but to really, really, truly listen to your end users. Uh, the power of collaboration and co-design the benefits of prototyping and visualization and photos and artifacts and symbols that that, that, that take us forward, the danger of entitlement in a business, the the importance of complementary skills as a leader. And I loved uh, John's philosophy about walking that fine line between humility and nobility. Very, very fascinating. So if you've got a wicked problem been hanging around for a while in your business, I could not more highly recommend that you get in touch with John and his team at ThinkPlace. Again, and let's use the global website that he gave us, which is www.thinkplaceglobal.com or the Canberra telephone number in Australia, that would be plus six one two six two eight two double eight five two, and we'll certainly put this on, on the notes for you. Um, get in touch with John, even if it's just a chat about your wicked problem and whether it's worthwhile applying some of the principles of design thinking to it. In itself, I think you'll find fascinating. I hope you've enjoyed this Enterprise Radio interview with John. I'm Paul Mitchell, speaker and author with The Human Enterprise. And until next time, find the passion, develop the skills, make the numbers and make a difference.